If this had been the ruling way, who knows what I might have done. My thoughts are easy led astray by any shining sun. Those four lines were found in one of many notebooks that were in plastic shopping bags beside the body of an old, possibly, no, probably, homeless man when he was discovered by a jogger early one morning down by the bridge at Houston Station in Parkgate Street in Dublin. I believe that he was what they called, or what had been called in his early life, a Menshevik, a faction within the Russian Revolution that was more moderate more true to the socialist ideal than the Bolsheviks, a group who adhered almost to the Johnson family code, the good bums and thieves code, as espoused by William Burroughs. Johnson, you see, honours his obligations. His word is good, and he's a good man to do business with. A Johnson gives help when needed. A Johnson minds his own business. It sounded to me like a perfect blueprint for a political system when I first read it. Still sounds like that to me now. I allow myself to imagine, with my safe lack of real historical expertise, that this was basically the philosophy of the Mensheviks, that they represented a genuine chance of something like an ideal socialism. Of course, that is pleasingly dramatic, but it doesn't demand anything from me. After all, the Mensheviks are gone, whoever they really were. And don't ask for anything from me except a dreamy sort of melancholy, nostalgia for a fantasy. Also, of course, none of this about the old man, I call him Nikolai Raisov in my mind, is true. I made this up, and once I made it up it took root in my head, and now it lives there, and acts like it's true, and acts like it owns the place. It definitely has squatters' rights. I did know homeless people who frequented that area, and some of them died, but they died when the building they were sleeping in collapsed overnight. Lots of those old buildings along the Liffey couldn't be rezoned for new apartments unless they actually fell down, so property developers let them rot until they did that. I walked over rubble from one of them one morning on my way to work and I remember thinking that it was good that it had come down at night so that there wasn't anyone in the street to get hurt. I found out later that a Welsh woman who was living on the streets, had been for ages, was killed in there. I still hope that those new apartments they built are haunted. Or maybe it should be the developers' mansions that's haunted. You have a tricky face, he said, screwing up his eyes. Tell me, I asked him, what makes you say I have a tricky face? Where is the snag? Funny, I always thought I had a most ordinary face. Well, I shouldn't exactly call it ordinary. A little higher, please. No, if you ask me, I find there is something distinctly rum about it. All your lines sort of slip from under my pencil. Slip and are gone. Every face is unique, pronounced Ardalion. Well now, really? Unique? Isn't that going too far? Hello, and welcome to my Picture House podcast. 
My name is Jamie Lynch. You're very welcome. Today we're going to start talking about Reiner Werner Fassbinder's 1979 film Despair, starring Dirk Bogard and based on the 1936 novel by Vladimir Nabokov. Before we get to the film, however, it's important that I tell you about who I was and where I was and what was happening in my life when I first saw this film. As Nabokov himself says in chapter three of the novel Despair, the distinctive features of this variation are rather obvious. It is clear for one thing that while a man is writing, he is situated in some definite place. He is not simply a kind of spirit hovering over the page. While he muses and writes, there is something or other going on around him. The same, of course, is equally true for the reader and for the viewer. This is a story of double, triple, and quadruple exposures. A story of multiple identities. It's about books, TV, videotapes, the new flesh. Dublin, Berlin, photographs, university and college. Dark streets and dark times, and the light emanating from various sources that brightens darkened rooms but not too much. It's about an English actor named Dirk Bogard, a German filmmaker called Reiner Werner Fassbinder, and seeing things sideways or through filters, seeing films on TV, seeing books as films, seeing one place as another, wanting to be someone else, wanting to be somewhere else, thinking somewhere else will make you someone else. Pretending Dublin, Berlin, and Berlin is Hamburg, and desperately looking for some other way of living. Some other way of living that can't ever be, be defined or identified, but involves ridiculous ideas about freedom and finding places to live that are unofficial. Crevices and empty spaces where you could live in the style of a large, comfortable rat and only occasionally emerge into the world proper to bless it with some new work of art. A world where the poor and disadvantaged who die mostly do so because of something more meaningful than a little more profit for someone who already has more than they need. To untangle a much knotted rope, you have to pick a thread, start there and see where it takes you. The process will be messy perhaps, but you will eventually come to a settled point where you find you have many parallel, colourful lines out before you. Some threads will be long and thick, others short and insubstantial. Perhaps their colours will be complementary, perhaps not. They will form no map, just illustrate the particular contours of certain times in your life and suggest only suggest how one thread of your life influenced the moods of the others. 
So, I will start with a single, fairly random thread. The fact that I first encountered many of my favourite works of art in a form other than the one they were intended to be consumed in. This was a recurring theme. I saw great films first on TV or video. I saw paintings printed in books. I heard of books on the radio. I read about films long before I saw them. In England, where I now live, there's some would call it a Catholic attitude to art. I call it working class. There are no, there are no doubt better things to call it. I took my art however I could find it and organised it in my own inaccurate but no less meaningful way. I accidentally invented my own history, my own cosmology, and other than the fact that it has ruined my ability to stay in meaningful connection to actual history, the calendar as it truly is measured, it has worked out fairly well. I may or may not sometimes lose myself for varying lengths of time in places that never existed, and that may cause some painful friction with reality, but on the whole, I think it has been worth it. I can think of three places the majority of these sidelong discoveries occurred. My parents' living room, a small flat in Cabra Park, the library of University College Dublin. The living room came first, of course, and Capra Park came last. The living room meant Saturday morning movies and films on past bedtime, often with seen all the way through, glimpses of coming attractions. It meant finding the exact point of the weekend where I was recovered enough from the horrors of school to relax and still far enough away from Monday morning and the return to school that I could keep it from my mind. Capra Park was an intense time of commune with the best sound system I have ever had, lost now but revered in memory. A fairly man manky idyll with the only pleasant private landlord that I've ever met, the only one who did not seem to want to take my money and then pressure me to act largely as if I didn't actually live there. Between these, there was UCD. University College Dublin. Every time is the limbo of other times. I approached University College Dublin at the age of 17 like a fearful dog approaches proffered cheese. I also approached it on the bus. At that time, the number 10 went from one terminus round the corner from my house to the other terminus in UCD, through town taking me from the familiarity of the north side with its salt-of-the-earth population raised on good tato crips to the strange territory that lay south of the Liffey where they turned up their cars for some reason and betrayed their elitist tendencies by snacking on crisps branded with the name King. Over the course of roughly an hour and 20 minutes, depending on traffic, there was a lot of quality time spent with a Walkman and 90-minute cassette tapes. The bus drivers were some of the most perfectly grumpy individuals ever brought together by a vocation, and that vocation was grumpiness itself. 
It was a time when those who held public-facing positions were allowed to express uh, how that made them feel and just how much they despised the public often. I was so intimidated, so frightened by UCD, everything about the place, the smell of perfume, the presence of people with confidence, the relative independence, that down to the ground my creeping eyes and cringing heart recoiled, and I stayed away from the library for months after the beginning of the first year, preferring to read stolen books by the artificial lake, freezing in my coat. I loved that coat. It was an old Garda coat or a police coat. My dad had given it, given it to me from his old uniform after it had been decommissioned uh, and was now subject to the indignity of civilian use. I can't imagine why they changed the uniform and got rid of this coat. This coat was both warm and waterproof. It was stiff in its way. Um, it almost felt like it might be standproof. But it wasn't too heavy, and it didn't restrict your movement when you wore it. I gave it away one night to a bouncer who had hours left on his shift on a particularly dirty, rainy Dublin night. For all the wonders of this coat, it was better when I worked up the courage to get into the library. Once I did, I went about things in my usual way. Supposed to be studying English, Greek and Roman civilization, and psychology, so I immediately proceeded to read books about art, philosophy, music, which was honestly what I thought I was signing up for when I when I signed up for psychology and films, voraciously. As Vladimir Nabokov writes in chapter two of a novel of despair, quote, "Please imagine what follows." the history of mirrors. Then, too, these are crooked ones, monsters among mirrors. A neck bared, no matter how tightly, draws out suddenly into a downward, downward yawn of flesh, to meet which there stretches up from below the belt another marchpane pink nudity, and both merge into one. A crooked mirror starts to squash him, and lo, there is produced a man bull, a man toad, under the pressure of countless glass atmospheres, or else one is pulled out like dough and then torn into two. Still wearing my coat like a shield, I read Andy Warhol's diaries, I read John Cage, I read about Francis Bacon, one of the many artists whose work I will always first associate with seeing as part of books rather than in a gallery. In my 18th year, I was, like most, attempting to crystallize around myself a personality. I was searching for someone to be, but my search was turning away from the characters from the cowboy movies of my childhood to the characters who made the movies I loved. I found a book purporting to be the autobiography or an authorised biography of the German filmmaker and theatre maker Reiner Werner Fassbender. I can't remember the name of this book, so I can't find a copy and reread it. I can only access my subjective memory. It's not so important for our purposes here, 
who Fassbinder was so much as who and what he was to me at that time, but I acknowledge that I owe him some accuracy in that regard. He was born in the immediate aftermath of complete defeat and surrender in Germany in 1948. Think in years to come, he would tell people he was born in 1949 and there's a suggestion that he wanted to remove himself from the significance applied by the 1948, the, the exact year that the war ended. But maybe he just wanted to make himself seem a year younger. I quickly fell in love with the idea of Fassbinder. He was the archetype of the outsider artist. He worked fast, made around 40 films, wrote and directed maybe 15 plays, made TV, and he was dead at 37 years old. He wore a fedora with a string vest and leather waistcoats over the string vests. He worked with the same people over and over again, uh, and he made little or no distinction between his professional and personal life, both of them being crazy and chaotic. And he, he was what I can only describe as formatively ugly. Um, the lifestyle he, he had made him soft and bloated and dreadfully pale. He would apparently avoid washing as a deliberate provocation. I think the whole thing was to say, take me as I think or not at all. He tried to push people away. He would force people to really make a statement, I suppose, that they cared about him, despite how he looked, despite how he acted, despite how he occasionally smelled. He was stopped in the street um, in one particular neighborhood uh, at one point in his life, apparently, and asked if he was the Reiner Werner Fassbinder. And he replied, Fassbender is much too famous to be here. He just seemed like the, the most committed rebel artist. Nothing else mattered to him except his art. Nothing else mattered to him except the work that he was doing. And it was almost an aggressive stance in that regard. Now that I'm more than a decade older than Fassbinder was when he died, I feel sorry for him in ways, for the kind of life that he had. It seems fractious and anxious and angry and dislocated and ugly in a much more important and a much more meaningful way than, you know, than his physical looks were. But maybe that's... Well, it's obviously not down to me to make that decision. Well, certainly not for him. And hopefully he had exactly the kind of life that he wanted. Although in the end, I just can't really imagine from what I've read about it, from what I know about it, that you could really say that it was a happy life. Scene. Interior. Four Montpellier Gardens, Dublin 7. Night. Before I was aware of him as an actor uh, through his work, 
I became aware of Dirk Bogart through a series of interviews I saw him give on the craft of acting on ITV. I think it was three separate, maybe half hour long interviews. And through watching them, he became a different type of ideal for me. He became a um, sort of example of a serious, a serious artist, a serious considered artist. Bogart may well in reality have been something of a fantasist and really not very nice at all. But that doesn't mean a great deal to me because he told stories uh, like this one about an exchange he had early in his career with a cameraman. Now, at this stage in his career, early on, Dirk Bogart was a guy who played cute, sort of um, unthreatening men he was he called himself the Dorothy Lamour of Pinewood Studios he was in the Doctor in the House movies and you know unashamedly popular mainstream movies and he played light romantic leads he had done a scene finished a scene and he noticed the cameraman, cameraman was Scottish and, you know, with the sort of casual racism of the time was called Jock. And he noticed this guy staring at him, you know, kind of quizzically, maybe a little grumpily. And Bogart asked, asked the guy what he was looking at, what was on his mind. And the cameraman said, oh, nothing. I was just wondering how the fuck you lasted. And Bogart had a moment where he, he thought, well, what do I do? Do I just, you know, go punch this guy in the face? Or do I ask him what he means and, and see if I can learn something here? So he asked him, he said, you know, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean? And this cameraman sort of proceeded to ask him a series of questions about, you know, do you know what lens we've been using in this scene? Do you know what lights we're using? Do you know what a redhead is? Do you know what a blonde is? And Bogart knew none of these things. And that was that was what he was saying. The cameraman said, this is, this is what I'm saying. You don't know anything about film acting. You don't know anything about films. You don't know how films get made. You don't know how much of you is visible uh, in a particular shot. You know nothing. And that was a moment that Bogart described where he he changed the whole way that he thought about acting and acting in films and started to really think about what cameras were being used, what lighting was being used, what was actually visible or not visible. And he started to really become an artist who considered his craft. And it was something I really admired and it was something that I wanted to, to be. I wanted to be someone who, who thought like that and, and whose life involves the necessity to think like that and to grow in that sort of artistic way. He told another story about um, working in Pinewood, I think, at the same time as Alan Ladd. They weren't working on the same film. Alan Ladd was working on a film somewhere else in, in Pinewood on one of the other stages. Bogart was working on one of his films. And 
there was a big canteen and and people the technicians and the actors and would 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 eat together and talk and he noticed that people would make fun of Alan Ladd the people who were working on the Alan Ladd film would make fun of him and laugh about him and sort of call him pretentious and and um he he listened and and said nothing and then one day Alan Ladd came into the canteen which he had done that often and the people Bogart were sitting were sort of nudging each other and, and nudging Bogart and saying wait, wait 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 listen to this listen 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 to this what see what happens and they shouted over to Alan Ladd hey Alan how's it going how's your day going and Alan Ladd's reply was really good thank you I did one great look and then he walked off and all the people you know were smirking and giggling under their breath and, and laughing about it and and Bogart's reaction was that's it that's 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 what it's all about one great look is enough to make a movie not all movies are great not all actors don't have control over how good a movie is or isn't necessarily very few individuals do but you can do something great with one look in a film as an actor and you can touch someone you can change someone's life or their perspective with one great look and that's the kind of way that you should be thinking as an actor and that's the kind of attention to detail and the kind of process of art making that you should be caring about as an actor and I, I listened to these stories that he was telling in this interview and I and I saw the sincerity and the concern in his face and I heard it in his voice and he became another example of the type of person that I really wanted to be. you so much for listening to this episode of the my picture house podcast i hope to produce two podcasts per month but that's a rough idea it's an aspiration rather than a commitment but i do commit to one per month definitely if you'd like to contact me you can do by email at picturehousepod at gmail.com and i'm on twitter at picturehousepod um, also, please take the time to review the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. That does really help. Next time, we'll have the second part of Despair, Fassbender, Bogart, Nabokov. My name is Jamie Lynch. Again, thanks very much for listening. Um, do get in contact with me with your, your memories of Fassbender movies, of Despair, of Bogart, uh, Dirk Bogart and um, or just let me know what the movies were that really affected you at different points in your life um, and we can read some out hopefully on uh, future upcoming episodes of the podcast bye for now and talk to you soon the beginning is a miasma of lilac.
Everything is washed in a sickly sweet glow. Hello, and welcome to the My Picture House podcast. My name is Jamie Lynch, and this is the second of a two-parter on Rainer Werner Fassbinder's film Despair, based on the novel by Vladimir Nabokov and starring Dirk Bogard. If you haven't heard the first episode, uh, maybe you should go back and listen to it now, and then come back and listen to this one. You're very welcome. Despair was on late, and we are back now in my mother and father's living room in Four Montpellier Gardens. As I said, it begins in a soft, sickly, lilac glow. You expect that to dissipate as the film goes on, but it doesn't. It stays like that for the whole nearly two-hour run of the film. I had read about Fassbinder, a lot about him, before I saw this film, and it was the first of his that I saw. In it, Herman Herman, played by Dirk Bogard at his most fastidious, a Russian emigre in 1930s Germany, owner of a chocolate factory that bears his name, Herman, just the one, Herman, patronizes his wife, Lydia, cruelly, played by Fassbinder regular Andrea Ferrol. As they get ready to make love, he insists that she leave the door of the bedroom open. The door opens onto a long corridor, and at the end of that corridor, another Herman sits, watching all that goes on. The Herman in the bedroom gazes in fascination at his distant other self, and he is clearly far more fascinated with this other him at the end of this long corridor watching what's going on than he is with his wife. It's a scene that reveals both massive insecurity on part of Bogart's character and also a huge need for, for dominance to make up for that insecurity. It's very noticeable that throughout the film, um, Herman stays fully clothed and um, Lydia, his wife, is often naked and in some sense vulnerable um, before him or in his presence. Although actually her body with which she's very comfortable, in which Herman makes fun of all the time, and he makes fun of how comfortable she is with her sexuality. Her body is very much a weapon for her, and she seems in many ways to have the upper hand, even if she isn't obviously in the dominant position. There is there's something threateningly carnal about the tone of the whole film, and it is, it's almost perfectly achieved. There's a whole twisted sexuality that washes over everything else and comes to be associated in your mind with that lilac glow. Frau Herman, Lydia, has a cousin who is a, an artist, may or may not actually be her cousin, 
who seems to be constantly hanging around. And it's clear that uh, he, Ardalion, and Lydia are having an affair. Herman is clearly deeply humiliated by this and very angry about it, but for some reason is completely incapable of confronting it head on. This may well be partly to do with Herman's lack of knowledge of himself. Herman is a man who is tortured by doubles. He asks, he asks a man in a restaurant, he assumes to be a doctor, about dissociation. And the man turns out to sell life assurance. He sits in the cinema as his wife is fed chocky walkies by Idalian, watching a movie about twin brothers, one a cop and one a criminal. The criminal kills his twin and tries to take his own identity, or his identity, but is then himself killed. talk on a business trip to Dusseldorf where Herman hopes to buy a failing um, chocolate factory is all about the way desire is constructed. What ratio of sugar to ginger attracts what sort of customer? That and how everything would be better if the Nazis were in charge. Herman himself does not seem to be a fan of Herr Hitler and his buddies, but he has no fixed notion of who he is. A red shirt, a brown shirt, a white shirt, or just, as he puts it himself, a yellow belly in a brown hat. And as an emigre, he considers it to be preposterous to have a political opinion, let alone to express one. On that trip to talk about buying this factory, he has a sort of a mini breakdown talking about his background and, and his, his mother, his father, his family, and... This so disgusts the person who he's doing business with that they tell him essentially to keep his fucking shekels. Again, I think a very strong reference to um, the possibility that Herman might have a Jewish background or a partly Jewish background and just that rising sort of race hate and um, feeling of superiority that is going along with or preceding the... Um, planting the seeds for an atmosphere in which the Nazis will, will grow and eventually come to power. Crucially, Herman meets a sort of a down and out or down on his look, starving beggar type. Um, and is instantly convinced that they look exactly alike, that they're doppelgangers. In the film, from the beginning, it's absolutely clear that that is not the case. This Felix does not look like him at all, really. But Felix is poor, and he thinks he might get some work out of it if this strange, rich, well-dressed man um, likes him. So Felix play, plays along and plays up to it. Germany lurches or maybe rushes along towards the madness of fascism as Herman slips towards his own 
personal madness expressed through a tragically comic plot involving fake blackmail, insurance fraud, the return of a fictional brother from the dead who wants to die on his birthday and have Herman take his place. That's a story told for Lydia. Revenge and the, the use of his non-double as a double and murder. He goes about this initially by telling Felix that he is an actor who requires a double for work in films. Surprisingly, Felix refuses on principle to do that sort of immoral work. He doesn't want anything to do with the cinema or art as he thinks it's professional lying and like philosophy is an invention of rich people. So Herman changes his story allowing Felix to believe he's just being used as an alibi for a simple robbery. All of this crazy, complicated plotting is for Herman the obvious way to simplify his life and start a new one without all the annoying, terrifying messiness with which he's surrounded. But when Herman puts his plan into action, the film succumbs to the same problems of doubled, split logics that have been plaguing the hero, and he finds life certainly no simpler than before. The viewer, too, is dislocated at this point by the plot, sharing Herman's shaky grasp on what we should take to be reality. It, it is definitely a proper descent into hell, that's for sure. A hell of one's own making, to an extent, but not entirely, as Herman is degraded by his freedom and he ends in what might well be the very worst and most humiliating way for him. Despair might not actually be the best name for this film. It is to me more obviously cruel than despairing. Herman Herman is himself a very cruel man, but he's in a world that is even more cruel. As a young man, I was attracted to Fassbinder's savage refusal to look away from this horror and cruelty. Three decades later, I don't feel the same. I still very much recognize that view of the world, but I find it more exhausting and far less attractive than I once did. Bogart quit acting for over a decade after Despair was released. Bogart felt that Despair was possibly his best performance and that Fassbinder cut that performance to pieces. He only returned once, 14 years later, in the excellent Daddy Nostalgie, a French film that was released um, in the English-speaking world as These Foolish Things. There's a very long tradition of stories in literature about doubles and doppelgangers. There's William Wilson by Edgar Allan Poe and Dostoevsky's The Double and, and lots of others. I might include um, The Man of the Crowd by Poe at a bit of a stretch, but maybe that's just because it's a story that I particularly love and I have always imagined involving a double. Um, since the beginning of cinema, there's also been a fascination with doubles. I think probably obviously because 
cinema gave gave artists the opportunity the really exciting opportunity to actually create those doubles to you know once you could do split screen and that was figured out very early on um in fact it would be my contention that most things that we still do in cinema most things that um that are very important technical innovations in cinema happened happened really really early on in the first couple of decades um and certainly by the time you're looking at the sort of Buster Keaton type silent films, they are doing things with celluloid that to me, you know, they can be equaled with CGI and things like that. It's obviously different, but all of the the, the special things that you can do in cinema in terms of what you can show, I think were achieved really, really early on and can just be reachieved or reimagined or done in different ways. Um as as time progresses but cinema of course could you could do split screen really quickly people figured that out really quickly and then there is that exciting idea that you can actually have doubles you can have the same person play two roles and you can have them on screen together so you know uh, thinking off the top of my head you've got your films like le double vie de veronique um, but so many films of sort of high culture and low culture and everything in between, if you accept those kind of designations of high and low culture, I'm not sure if I really do, to be honest. Um, cinema really does lend itself to the portrayal of stories um, involving doubles. I also think, particularly with Despair, a story about doubles... And this, the way that despair is presented is very open to being interpreted as a reflection on art and cinema making and theatre making and acting. There is um, there's a lot of emphasis. The, the last scene, the very last scene, which is part of a really truly great performance. I know Bogart felt felt that his performance was ruined. It it definitely wasn't. Um, that last scene in the film, where he talks about himself as an actor, where he's kind of completely given himself up to the idea of unreality, um, is very moving and wonderfully done. But throughout the 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 um there was obviously a scene in the cinema at the beginning and throughout the film there are, it's peppered with discussions of cinema and art. And that interaction between Felix um who who um Herman imagines to be his double where uh, Herman Herman decides that he will tell Felix that he's an actor and he needs a double. And you think that he thinks that's going to be a very easy way to get um, Felix, who is a beggar, who is, is, is living essentially on the streets in poverty. Um, it'll be a very easy way to get Felix to, um, to do what he wants. But his reaction, Felix's reaction is, despite how desperate he is for money, is absolutely, it's revulsion at the idea of being involved in any way in the cinema or in the arts and he has a he has an absolute moral revulsion to you know what as i said he kind of considers professional lying and something deeply immoral and sort of no amount of money will get him to do it 
it's easier to convince him to get involved when he thinks that there is just sort of a, a good honest theft um, being perpetrated. Fassbender died in 1982 and um, so even though he was a young man when he died this film is late in his career and he had made so many films and worked on so many theatre productions and TV um, before Despair that I can't help but feel it is in many ways a reflection, a meditation, a very bitter and angry meditation um, on the nature of filmmaking and the nature of making art by someone who seems to be quite a comes across as the mind of a sort of quite tired old man, even though Fassbender was still quite young um, when the film was released. The reason that I'm talking about despair today on this podcast, where we celebrate films that have been particularly important and meaningful to us obviously isn't because it's an especially uplifting film and it's a film which I think if I watched for the first time now at this time in my life would not mean quite the same to me definitely wouldn't mean quite the same to me and and you know mightn't get into a podcast like this but 30 something years ago it was really a very very different story 30-something years ago, I was really attracted to and really admired the, the intensity of the creative force behind it, the ability to look at and express, you know, express a view of the world as cruel as, as expressed in, in, in this film. And I did back then and spent maybe 10 years trying to live up to or live down to in some ways that kind of life, that kind of sort of holy degeneracy, um, that artist as a complete outsider image, not with anything like the, and I'm glad, not with anything like the commitment of someone like Fassbinder, but I'm also really, really glad that that Fassbinder's movies and Despair, um, sp specifically, are there, um, and hopefully there forever, and for other people, other people to see and other people to experience, um, and to discuss and to feel. So, thank you very, very much for listening to uh, this second episode on Reiner Werner. Fassbinder's um, film Despair starring Dirk Bogart and based on the novel by Vladimir Nabokov which you know I probably should have talked about this is such a combination of huge names actually I haven't spoken at all about Tom Stoppard who wrote the script and Tom Stoppard the playwright at that point was another huge name getting someone like Stoppard to to write um to write this film was also would have been a huge huge coup and um 
and would have been considered ex extremely important. Um, Snopart has spent probably more time than than I would like doing rewrites um, anonymously on all sorts of not very good films for an awful lot of money. Um, but I mean, who am I to who am I to judge people for um, liking a nice life? Um, I think he definitely was the sort of person who was attracted to the almost the opposite kind of life um, that Fassbinder um, was attracted to. But then he lived a lot longer and um, I guess you could say was in many ways more successful. Anyway, um, thanks again for listening to, to the podcast. Uh, we will be back again very soon, hopefully inside two weeks. I really would love to hear from people about um, their experiences of watching Despair, of Fastbinder movies, or just, again, what the folks of this podcast is to talk about um, the, the, the films that meant the most to you at specific points in your life and why. And uh, I'd love to get some stories in so that we can um so that we can uh share them and talk about them um so yeah once again thanks for listening and if you want to get in contact with me you can through twitter it's um on twitter at picturehouse pod or you can contact me by email and that's picturehousepod at gmail.com Come. Uh, oh yeah, and also please, as always, take the time to review the podcast on your preferred pod, pod, podcast platform. Um, yes, be kind, uh, be constructive, be kind, um, and don't be creating a world as cruel as Reiner Werner Fassbinder's. Um, until then, until the next time, look after yourselves, and thank you very much for listening. Slán.